we're going to turn our attention to the closing verses of the gospel according to Mark this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark 1540 through 168. Mark 1540 through 168. Several years ago on Easter Sunday, a news reporter in Australia interviewed the then Anglican Archbishop of Perth. He's a well-known religious figure in Australia and one that many would definitely find interested in what he had to say. And so on this Easter Sunday, the, the reporter asked the Archbishop, if, if tomorrow we discovered the tomb of Jesus and could somehow prove that the remains in the tomb were Jesus' remains, what would that do to your faith? To this, the archbishop replied to this question, this question saying, you know, what if we discovered that the resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened? What if we discovered that the claims of the New Testament about Christ were false, that all this time the rotted corpse of Jesus had been somewhere in Israel the whole time, what would that do to your faith? He said that it wouldn't do anything to his faith because Jesus would still be risen within his heart. That may sound like a pious and, and spiritual thing to say, however, it's also a deeply unbiblical and unchristian thing to say. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beating heart of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, as John Calvin put it, is the hinge of the Christian faith. And, and don't take my word for it or John Calvin's word for it. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it is of first importance for us as Christians. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that if Christ has not been raised, then then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He says in verse 17 that if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and you're still in your sins. He says in verse 19 that if Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, Christian, if, if Christ has not been raised, then you are not forgiven. You don't have eternal life to look forward to. Your labors to deny yourself and kill your sin and evangelize the lost and give generously to God's mission and serve for the sake of Christ and all the rest of it, they're all a pointless waste of time that will amount to nothing in the end. If Christ has not been raised, then you are one of the saddest, most pathetic things in the entire universe, Paul says. Everything hinges... On this truth, this claim, this event of Christ being raised from and victorious over death on our behalf, everything hinges on this. And so with that in mind, let's read Mark 15, 40 through 16, 8. And let's explore this testimony that Mark gives to this all-important event for us. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with relish to the word of our God written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Christ's servant Mark. Mark 15, 40 through 16, 8. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud. And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud. 
and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we we come to the end of this journey in Mark's gospel that we've spent the last two years plus going through. And it ends so strangely, so abruptly. We pray that now as we come to this, that we would see this strangeness as an invitation to explore and to consider and to meditate on and to, to apply to ourselves as a calling to being convinced by this testimony and courageous in witness. We pray that as a result of this passage here this morning, we would be saved and sanctified, that we would be growing in faith and assurance in all so that we might glorify you in our callings and vocations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we have spent about the last 60 Sundays, or we've spent rather, about 60 Sundays over the last two years or so in Mark's gospel. And one of Mark's favorite literary devices we've seen is what we've been, not just we, but many call Markin sandwiches. It's where there's, there's two obviously related stories that are told with a seemingly unrelated story in the middle. The two obviously related stories serve as the bread, and the seemingly unrelated story in the middle is the meat, and and what we've seen again and again is that the seemingly unrelated story in the middle is actually intimately related to Mark's message and meaning in the sandwich. Mark has done this over and over again as a really sophisticated way of inviting us into deeper meditation on and consideration of his message, And, and we've seen this literary device and stories involving uh, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, if you remember that. Uh, we've seen it in the sending out and the return of the twelve uh, in their missions trip and the beheading of John the Baptist. We've seen it in the parable of the sower and its explanation, as well with the uh, explanation of all the parables in, in the middle. And, and, and we've seen it over and over again. We've actually seen it eight times so far. And so it only seems appropriate then that Mark would end his gospel with one of his favorite literary devices now. and We see him do so in Mark 15, 40 through 16, 8. And we're just going to kind of walk through this passage this morning, kind of showing this structure, and then we're going to close with two exhortations for us from Mark's message here. Our passage is bookended or sandwiched with the presence of women. In verses 40 to 41... We're still at the scene of the crucifixion here, and here Mark introduces a few women to us. He writes that there were women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. 
So there are three ladies mentioned here. There's Mary Magdalene, who all four of the Gospels uh, count as a, a witness to the resurrection. There's also Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. Now, there's some debate here as to whether this Mary was Jesus' mother, as per Mark 6.3, or a different Mary being distinguished from Jesus' mother when she's identified as the mother of James the Younger. Uh, and then there's uh, Salome, who's probably the mother of the disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, as per Matthew 27.56. And it, it says in verse 41 that when Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, as we'll go on to see here, this passage is in one sense using these ladies as something of a foil. Okay, so Mark is portraying these female disciples as being fearful and timid when they should have been courageous and bold. And this is in contrast to Joseph of Arimathea's courage and boldness in the middle of our passage this morning. And yet at the same time, Mark is also showing us something of the significance of the ministry of these women in the life and ministry of Jesus. They are timid here, and they're fearful, witnessing Christ's crucifixion from far off at a distance. These ladies have been following Jesus. They've been his partners in ministry. They've been serving Jesus faithfully. And, and, and their distance is still preferred to Peter's and the other disciples' complete absence, isn't it? But, but while they're fearful and timid, they're, they're here. They've been ministering and serving Jesus up until this time. And so in one sense, Mark is commending them for it. He's showing us something of the dignity and worth and importance of women in the kingdom of God. And this is worth noting, ladies. One of the, the things this shows us is something of how your presence and your works and your gifts are valued and important in the kingdom of God and in the church. You have something significant and important to offer Christ's church that, frankly, we wouldn't have if we were just a bunch of men. So I can't even imagine what our church would be like if it was just a group. It would be terrible. As men and women, we, we, we complement each other so well in our gifts and graces and proclivities. And that means that you have something unique and valuable to offer specifically as women. J.C. Ryle, the, that great and bold preacher of the, the 1800s, says of this very passage, he says, it seems meant to teach us that women have an important place in the church of Christ, one that ought to be assigned to them and one that they ought to fill. There's a great work that women can do for God's glory, even without being public teachers or even without being elders or pastors, we should say. Happy is the congregation in which women know this and act upon it. This passage shows us something of the importance and dignity of the ministry of women in God's kingdom. But then, as I said, the, these ladies here also serve as something of a foil. Again, they're at the crucifixion. They're witnessing the death of Christ, but it says that they're doing so from afar. They're looking on from a distance. And that phrase is meant to, to uh, cause us to recall something. The last time we saw someone doing that, of course, it was Peter with Mark, uh, or Peter in Mark 14, 54. And there we saw Peter following and, and looking on Jesus from a distance because he didn't want to risk being associated with Jesus at that time. He didn't want to face what it might have cost him to be associated with this, this man on trial here. He, he was fearful and timid when he ought to have been bold and courageous and standing beside his Lord. These women are doing the same here. They're fulfilling... Precisely what Psalm 38, 11 foretold concerning the death of Christ, which says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. These ladies are, are far off, fearful to be associated with the crucified one, fearful to possibly face the risk of the same fate they fearfully witness from afar here. And as I said, this is in contrast to the courage of Joseph of Arimathea, he boldly stands before Pilate and appeals for the body of Jesus in verses 42 to 47 here. As we saw last time, Jesus died on the cross at about 3 p.m. And this was Friday, remember. Mark says here, they, they called Friday the, 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 the day of preparation. It was the day before the Sabbath. And so if someone was going to bury the body of Jesus here, they had to move quickly. They wouldn't have been able to do it 
Come sundown, which was the beginning of, of Sabbath, the beginning of the Sabbath was at the sunset the night before. And so Mark says in, in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea immediately began this process of acquiring Jesus' body for burial. Now Joseph, we see here, is identified as, as a respected, or a, 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 your translation might say a prominent member of the council. And the council mentioned here would have been the Sanhedrin. So that was the council in Jerusalem, made up of scribes and the high priests. It was that council that condemned Jesus and handed him over to Pilate for crucifixion in Mark 14. Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of that council. Of course, Luke 23, 51 tells us that he had not consented to the, de the decisions and actions of the council. But as we see here, he, he was a man who had the respect of those on the council and of the people of Israel there. Matthew 27, 57 says that Joseph was a rich man, probably made rich because of his position on the council. All that to say he was a prominent, wealthy, respected member of that council and in that community. We also learn about Joseph, though, verse 43 here, that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now understand, it doesn't just mean that he was like a, a seeker or just kind of open to Jesus. That phrase, that phrase is describing someone whose aim and hope in life is God's new creation kingdom breaking into this world. Okay, in other words, he was a believer. Now, Matthew 27, 57 calls him a disciple of Jesus. Joseph was a believer in Jesus Christ. John 19, 38 tells us that he had been a disciple of Jesus secretly. He had yet to publicly identify himself as such. But as we see here, Although risky, although potentially costly, Joseph at this moment, at this time, goes public with his faith here. Okay, verse 43 says, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now those crucified at that time would have typically not been buried, at least not right away. Typically would have been left on the cross to be picked apart and eaten by birds for possibly days and then eventually thrown into a ditch to be food and bones for wild dogs. It would have been typical. But Joseph, out of his love for and loyalty to Jesus, can't let that happen. And, and, and understand, this was a risky action for Joseph to take. He took cur it, this took courage on his part. Remember, the reason Peter and the disciples abandoned, the, the reason the ladies here are standing far off and keeping distance is because it's risky to be associated with Jesus at this point, right? It could cost one reputation, which apparently Joseph had a lot to lose in that arena. It could cost one relationships and, and family and in the community as all the Jews seemingly opposed and were hostile to Jesus here. With that, it could potentially cost you income or means of income. It, it could get Joseph kicked off this council. Most of all, it could potentially cost one's life. Think about it. Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin for charges of blasphemy, which could get you stoned to death in Israel. He was handed over to the Romans on charges of challenging Caesar's rule, a capital crime. So if you get associated with Jesus here, as one who believes and follows him, you could potentially be charged with blasphemy or as part of a group that was challenging Caesar's rule. You could potentially be stoned or likewise crucified. So this is courageous, Mark wants us to see. This is bold to at this time come forward as one being associated with Jesus, as someone willing to, to be associated with Jesus. Joseph is putting it on the line. It's courageous. We don't know what ultimately happened with Joseph as a result. But we do know that Pilate granted him his request. Picking up in verse 44, it says that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And, and summoning the centurion, that's the one from our previous passage that we looked at two Sundays ago, who confessed Jesus as the Son of God. Pilate called him. And he asked him whether Jesus was already dead and Pilate... Uh, and, and, and when Pilate had it confirmed from the centurion that Jesus was dead, it says he granted the corpse to Joseph. And at this point, 
Joseph wrapped Jesus in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And here's where we meet the women again. Verse 47 concludes chapter 15 by saying that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. These ladies watched Christ's burial on Friday night. And our text brings us next to early Sunday morning when these same ladies come to witness the empty tomb with fear. And it seems that that with the haste in preparing for the Sabbath and doing this burial and and preparation on the day of preparation, some of the items in Jesus' burial might have been left undone. It would have been customary to anoint the body of someone being buried, but with the Sabbath quickly approaching, some parts might not have taken place, at least not to these ladies' standards. And so as we see in verse 1 of chapter 16 here, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, And Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. They probably purchased the spices and oil on Saturday night at the Sabbath's conclusion. And then verse 2, very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So this was dawn on the first day of the week. As Christians, Pastor Brian mentioned it earlier, as Christians, ever since the earliest days of the church... We've not gathered on the seventh day of the week as is customary for the people of Israel. Instead, we've gathered on the first day of the week for worship as a means of commemorating that Jesus was raised from death on the first day of the week, as a means of showing that the dawn of the new creation has taken place, and that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, these ladies, they were obviously not expecting a resurrected Savior when they set out that morning. They were expecting to come and anoint a dead, lifeless corpse. We see this because while on on their way, they wonder aloud, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Yet when they arrive, it says that they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Mark wants us to see that detail. So the way that this would have worked is that the stone it, it would have been rounded and it would have been fairly easy for a man to push the stone into place, to roll it into place, but once set, it would have been very difficult to get it back out. Not impossible, but difficult, and, and, and would have taken probably multiple uh, hardy men. This, this, was a, this was done as a means of deterring grave robbers or wild animals from uh, accessing the corpse. But all that to say, these ladies could not have rolled away the stone themselves. Besides, they, they were perplexed themselves at the stone's removal. And being perplexed by this, these ladies go inside the tomb to see what happened, fearing that Jesus' body might have been taken, fearing that those hostile to him might have desecrated his tomb or his corpse. But instead, they don't find anything of the sort. They find a young man, who's obviously an angel, appearing before them. And it says there was a, a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You see, these ladies have just continually been so fearful and anxious. They're asking questions, who's going to do this for us? And and they're afraid here at the sight of this young man. But but as angels often do in the Bible, when people are frightened in their presence, this angel encourages these ladies. And he encourages them with the most incredible words imaginable. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Friends, it would be impossible for us to overstate the significance of these words. Jesus has risen. You know what that means? This this means he is who he said he is. Right When he identified himself as the Savior and Son of God, he was telling the truth. He's been vindicated. His claims have been vindicated here. When he claimed that he, would, he has come to die as a ransom for broken sinners like us so that we might be forgiven and redeemed, he was telling the truth. His resurrection vindicates him and his claims. Friends, this means that if you trust in Jesus this morning, this means 
The resurrection tells you your forgiveness is real. It's true. It's sealed. This means our hope and faith is not in vain. It means the light of the new creation has dawned and the first fruits of our resurrection has come. Of all this and more, Jesus has given assurance in his own glorious, victorious resurrection. The, the resurrection means Christianity is true. It's not a farce. We as Christians have real forgiveness real hope, real salvation, and all in one who is really the Son of the living God. And this is not news that anyone is meant to keep to themselves. And so these ladies are told to go, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You see, they're there to go spread this news to those cowardly, abandoning, hiding disciples, Peter being called out by name. These ladies are to go tell these men the news because it means their redemption. It means everything sad is coming untrue. It means they can come out of hiding. It means that, that while they've been conquered and unfaithful, Jesus has, been, has conquered and been faithful on their behalf. And yet Mark ends his gospel in, in, in such a peculiar, abrupt, strange way here. Verse 8 concludes the whole of Mark's gospel by saying this. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. They ran away. Not in joy and courage and, but in trembling and astonishment. It had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They were afraid. They ought to have been bold and courageous and bore witness to all that they had seen and heard. They were afraid. They said nothing to anyone. Again, they're provided here as an example of what ought to be as disciples of Jesus, as a foil. Because they let their fear overtake them and force them into silence when bearing witness was their call. And so it just ends. I would be remiss here if I didn't address this elephant in this text that in most of our Bibles, there's another 11 verses here, right? There's another 11 verses, verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16 here. And we're only going to verse 8 today. And Green, you're saying, you're saying this is the last Sunday we're in Mark. What gives here? Well, friends, the, the general consensus among biblical scholars and of your elders here is that these last 11 verses of Mark's gospel are not actually originally a part of Mark's gospel, that they're a later addition. Therefore, we don't consider them to be the inspired word of God. That's not to say these verses aren't interesting or even enlightening or helpful in some regard, but we don't count them as a part of Mark's authentic gospel and thus not as the inspired word of God. And there's three main indications of this. First is something that you could very much probably very easily see for yourself. You just read it and, and notice it doesn't at all sound like the rest of Mark's gospel, does it? The content, the vocabulary, it doesn't match with the rest of Mark's gospel. You can see that these verses, you read it on the end there, it just it acts like an awkward addendum to Mark 16 here. It's, it's showing us this, this is not original to Mark as the author. Second indication is from church history. One biblical scholar notes here that neither Clement of Alexandria, the second century, nor Origen, also of the second century, shows any knowledge of these verses. In fact, a third century church historian named Eusebius is recorded in a letter saying that nearly all the copies of Mark, the copies they had at the time, lacked these verses. Which brings us to the last fact, some of the, the indicating that the earliest, or uh, indicating that it's not original to Mark here, is that the earliest manuscripts we have, some of the earliest manuscripts we have, some of them, don't contain these verses. Of course, we don't have the, like, original copy that Mark penned, Mark wrote. We don't have the original copy of Mark's gospel that he himself wrote, but we do have many, many, many copies, like a lot. And some of those copies have a longer, have this longer ending. Some of the copies also have another ending that they call a shorter ending. Uh, it's a little shorter. Uh, but some of the oldest copies we have 
end Mark's gospel at verse 8. And even some of the manuscripts that do contain these, these verses that have the longer ending, they have notes that express doubts about their authenticity. And so with these three indications that this longer ending is not original to Mark, we're not going to treat it as such. And I understand that this might feel like cause for concern for some of us. It might make some of us feel, I don't know, a little uncomfortable and cause us to question something of the reliability of the Scriptures. It's, in fact, nothing to be concerned about at all. This should actually encourage us. You see, early on in the church's history, Mark and the other New Testament books were copied by scribes again and again and again so that these biblical books could be circulated to, to all the churches spreading throughout the world at the time. They didn't have printing, printers or printing presses. And so these meticulous scribes would have to copy these books, providing them for those who, who needed them. And you can imagine that when that happens, there's bound to be some discrepancies that eventually creep into various copies. It's bound to happen in some regard. Now, the amazing thing about all of our scriptural books is that we have so many copies and that they're so consistent and so reliable. The, these discrepancies, they're relatively few, and the vast majority of them are entirely consequential. They're just like minor grammatical or spelling errors. I mean, we, we, we have more and more consistent and reliable copies of these, of these biblical books than we do of pretty much any other writings from that time. Like, we have so many more and more reliable and consistent copies of Mark, for example, than we do the writings of Plato or of Aristotle. Yet no one's challenging or questioning the reliability or historicity of those writings. And just so, we can trust. We, we can trust that what we have in our hands this morning is reliable. It truly is. We actually have more reason to trust that it is. Because you see, the endings of Mark 16 here are actually the biggest variants we find in the New Testament. And the fact of the matter is, we as Christians are incredibly open and transparent about that fact and are entirely willing to admit its lack of authenticity and subsequently set it aside as not being a part of the Word of God. Why? Because we have such high standards for what we will include in the canonicity of Scripture. We have very high standards for what we will consider authentic. We're not afraid of textual criticism. We're not afraid of really looking at the evidence and considering whether a writing like this is actually original to the author or not. We're not afraid to do that, and we shouldn't be. And, and, and frankly, the longer endings of Mark's gospel just don't meet the high standards we have for what we will consider authentic. Now, if that's the case, what gives here? I mean, you, you can see why a scribe might have added a longer ending here, can't you? I mean, let's just be honest. We can see why a scribe might have done that. Mark's gospel is just going, and it's going, and then it just ends. It just ends. It seems so abrupt. It seems so sudden. It seems kind of like the beginning of Mark, doesn't it? It, it do you remember how the beginning of Mark, when we started that uh, about two years ago now, it just begins so suddenly, so abruptly, just with this little one-sentence introduction, and then launches into the story, and then he ends in the same way here, doesn't he? As I've stated, he's, he's done so for a particular reason. There's a design behind this. Now, some of the people have argued that that Mark didn't intend to end his gospel in verse 8 here, but that the original ending was lost or that he, he didn't finish due to persecution or martyrdom. But, but what we find here is a Markan sandwich that begins and ends with a group of frightened women standing far off in silence because of their fear, sandwiching a story about a disciple of Jesus who boldly and courageously identifies with Jesus in his death. And as Mark has told this story, He's been going along, showing us the important pieces of evidence for the historicity and factual nature of Christ's resurrection, all the while beckoning us into courageous discipleship and witness ourselves. And so with that, I want to close with two pieces of exhortation. I kind of want to tease out from these verses here before we close. The first is this, be convinced. Be convinced. Be convinced by this testimony of Christ's resurrection. Mark wrote this 
in part with an, apolo- with an apologetic intention in mind. He penned these verses because he wants his readers to believe and have assurance that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Friends, it's a fact that something wild happened in Jerusalem in the first century involving the body of Jesus. Something happened. Everyone agrees on that fact. The question is, what happened? And with the resurrection being a supernatural event, there have been various naturalistic theories that have been offered as to what happened with Jesus' body there in the first century. And some of these theories are present even in Mark's day. Some of those theories have continued to be propagated to this day. Some new theories have, have been given, but they can all be boiled down to just a few explanations that I want to go through here and show you why they don't work. First, some people claim that the resurrection can be explained in this way. Jesus didn't die. This is called the swoon theory. Some people will claim that Jesus didn't actually die, but that he, he went comatose on the cross from the excruciating pain and the blood loss and the bodily trauma he endured. He, he passed out. Friends, this is not feasible. This is not feasible. For one, the Roman procedures for crucifixion were very careful to eliminate the possibility of someone surviving. And moreover, these, these soldiers... They were master executioners. This centurion, this centurion who told Pilate here in verse 44 that Jesus was indeed dead, he was not an amateur. He was a professional killer. When the centurion said that Jesus had died, he knew what he was talking about. He saw the lifeless corpse of Jesus when it was taken down off that cross and placed in the tomb. Besides, even if this theory was true, it would be impossible For someone who had just survived crucifixion to get up, roll away a stone covering his grave, and then in his weakened state convince all of his followers that he is the defeater and conqueror of death. Now, he would have needed a lot of time for recovery. He would have eventually died at a later date anyway. So this theory is not feasible. The second common theory is that Jesus did die, but that he didn't rise. And instead, his disciples were all mistaken regarding his resurrection. All four of the Gospels show that there were various witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Mark doesn't include the stories regarding uh, several of the eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ. It wasn't part of his MO. But the other Gospels record various encounters and eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ. And this theory claims that they were all mistaken. Right? So one version of this theory involves the disciples and these ladies all hallucinating that they saw Jesus. It claims that they're sat in their sadness and in their mourning, their loss of their close friend and teacher, this man that they had all set their hopes on, that in their grief, they all started hallucinating that they saw him after his death. This too is not feasible. Hallucinations like that, they, they do happen sometimes to people. Uh, but they're, they're typically, they would be private, individual, subjective. They're not shared by multiple people And especially considering that it's not like there's just one or two people who saw the risen Christ. It was these ladies. It was the 11 disciples. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. So that there were actually uh, 500 people that Jesus appeared to. 500 people don't have a shared hallucination. Besides, even if they had, don't you think that if all the Jews and the Romans who were so opposed to this growing movement of Christ's followers who claimed he was raised from the dead, if all they had to do was put this claim to rest by showing the grave and corpse of Jesus, don't you think they would have done that? There's another version of this mistaken theory. It's that these ladies actually went to the wrong tomb. They had, just, they had gone to another tomb, an empty tomb, and they mistook it for the one Jesus was buried in. And yet Mark seems to be answering this very theory in verse 47 when he wrote that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Mark wants us to see. They knew the tomb he was buried in. And even if they had been mistaken and went to the wrong tomb, again, don't you think that those who opposed this growing movement of Jesus followers would have just produced the tomb and the corpse of Jesus if this was just a case of wrong directions? Of course, they couldn't because the tomb was empty. And so this theory, too, isn't viable. A third theory is that this was all an act of deception on the part of the disciples. They had planned this conspiracy in which they 
They stole the body and, and constructed this narrative about Jesus rising and also that they might achieve this, this status of prominence as new leaders for a new religion and movement which would take over the world. And this too isn't feasible. And for one, if the disciples really had cooked this story up, don't you think they would have portrayed themselves in a little bit better light than they have done in Mark's gospel? I mean, they look really bad throughout pretty much all of Mark's gospel. They're continually portrayed as utter imbeciles. They tell the story of Christ's arrest and betrayal and include their complete abandonment of him, their cowardliness. And then what's more is that they didn't rise to a place of prominence and status in the first century. They were persecuted. They were arrested and beaten. History tells us that all of them were executed but one for their trust in and testimony concerning Jesus. As Blaise Pascal once put it, I'm liable to believe witnesses who get their, their throat cut. Right? If this was all a lie on their part, they wouldn't have died for a lie. And then even more is, is that if it were a lie, it's a pretty poor one. Because all four of the Gospels record women as the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and to the risen Christ. And this was written at a time when a woman's testimony wouldn't have even been accepted in court. Women were not viewed at that time as reliable witnesses. Thus, the apostles would not have made this claim if they were making this up. And yet, all four gospel writers want us to see that women were the first eyewitnesses here. And then lastly, another theory is that these are all just myths. That those who wrote these books, these accounts, wrote them as myths and nice moral lessons. They're not to be taken as literal, historical, factual documents. And yet anyone with a lick of, of sense when reading the gospel we all just read for the last two years will see that can't be the case. Mark has given exact historical details again and again. He's given times and days of specific historical events. He's given the specific names of eyewitnesses again and again of people that, that those in the church in Rome knew so that they, if they wanted to, they could go ask these people named in Mark's gospel about what they saw. He's recorded precise details concerning these events. All that to say, this gospel, along with the others, they don't bear the marks of myth. They just don't. They're meant to read as historic, factual accounts of the life, teaching, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth so that we might know him and believe in him. And so here's the only remaining theory available to us. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. As long as we don't start with the assumption that the resurrection is impossible, we have every reason to believe it's true. He rose from the dead the third day after his death. The empty tomb attests to it. The eyewitness accounts attest to it. The authenticity of the scriptures attest to it. Jesus is risen from the dead. Friends, be convinced of this fact this morning. Be confident in the historicity of this fact this morning. Be assured of the truthfulness of this claim this morning. As the angel put it, he is risen. It's true. Be convinced. And the next, secondly, be courageous. Be courageous in your witness concerning the risen Christ. Be confident, be convinced by this claim and its evidence here. Having been made confident and convinced, be courageous in your witness. This is, this is undoubtedly why Mark ends his gospel in such a peculiar manner. He ends so abruptly with this fear and silence of these ladies contrasted with the courage of Joseph of Arimathea. Because in his closing, he's putting the question to us. What are you going to do? What are you going to do in response? How are you going to respond to this historic, factual event. You've got to understand, we've already seen in our time in Mark's gospel that, that Mark is, is writing to a church in Rome that's been subject to harsh, frightening, terrible persecution, the, the horrors of persecution from the emperor Nero in Rome towards the Christians there in that city at that time. They're hard to overstate. They, they underwent horrific times of persecution. They were arrested. 
They were separated from their families. They were tortured. They were murdered. Nero is, is said to have actually burned Christians at the stake as a way of lighting up his garden parties for night for him and his guests. And Mark is writing this gospel as a way of encouraging those disciples in the church in Rome to pick up their own crosses and to boldly identify themselves as followers of Jesus, to confess Jesus as Lord faithfully, to confess Him as the Son of God, and not Nero, but Jesus as Lord faithfully, to be courageous and to be bold in Christian witness and to not be silenced into fear. And we know from the other Gospels that these ladies eventually do speak up. They spread the news of Christ's resurrection to the disciples, but Mark doesn't record that point for us. He's being selective in his details because he's trying to make a point. He's trying to put this question to us. Are we going to be silenced by fear? And Joseph of Arimathea, he came to this point in this gospel wherein he would no longer sit silently on the side as a secret disciple. He courageously and boldly comes out into the open as a follower of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says of him, he he comes to this point where he burns his boat and crosses his bridges. He comes to this point where he will stand with Jesus, whatever the cost. He didn't pick or choose the timing in which he had to make this decision, but he made this decision and he chose to stand with Jesus. The question Mark is putting to us, what will we do? Friends, I, I know, I know we're living in a time and in a place in which being a confessional Christian increasingly carries liability with it. It it used to be the case that Christians and our our beliefs had some measure of respect in our culture. And then as time went on, Christianity lost that place of respect. It was, even for a time, it was at least tolerated and, and seen as maybe somewhat neutral for a time. Those days are quickly going, possibly gone altogether. There's what we believe about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. What we believe about the sinfulness of humanity. What we believe about the truthfulness and authority of the Bible. What we believe about sexuality and gender. These kinds of beliefs are not only increasingly rejected in our culture, they're increasingly seen as immoral and dangerous, and thus we're seen increasingly as immoral and dangerous. And so if we're public and confessional Christians as we ought to be, we're going to increasingly feel the effects of that. I know it's not you know, like it was with Nero here. I don't think any of us are in danger of being lit up to, to, or burned to death to light up some presidential garden parties or anything. But let's not make light of the cost. Being a confessional Christian is increasingly costly. As we seek to love this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we seek to go forth with deeds of love and words of witness, as we seek to to connect with our culture and lovingly confront our culture with the gospel and all in an effort to see people converted to the gospel, some of us, We'll meet with the scorn and slander of our very own family. Some of us already have. Some of us have been and will be reviled by our neighbors or coworkers. Some of us could lose reputation and respect. Some of us could lose jobs or income. And, and, and we can just be honest about that. It's, it's hard. That's hard. It's sometimes risky to identify yourself and to speak up as a Christian. Sometimes the consequences hurt. Sometimes it takes courage. And that's what Mark is beckoning us to here. And thankfully, this passage that beckons us to courage is also a passage that provides every reason for courage. Friends, if Jesus is raised from the dead, we have every reason to be courageous in our discipleship and confession and mission and witness. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then he is who he said he is. The resurrection confirms it. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's Lord, not Caesar. He's in charge. He's the true king, which means we have the truth on our side. 
And sometimes one of the fears that maybe could keep some of us from, from being bold and courageous in witness is fear that we could be wrong. But, but nothing could be more encouraging here and reassuring than that Jesus has proved the truth we confess. We can be courageous if we know we have the truth. Jesus is raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, then, then our redemption is secured. Our sins are forgiven. There's, there's no boldness that comes like the boldness that comes from knowing your sins are forgiven, that your guilt is taken away, that your sin is atoned for, that there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. You've got nothing eternally or ultimately to be afraid of. On that last day, when you stand before your maker, he won't condemn you, even if this entire world does. You can be courageous if you know that's true. If Jesus is raised from the dead, you know that whatever happens in your life, your future is secure. You've got glory coming. You've got resurrection, eternal life coming. Jesus is the first fruits, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He's the first fruits of your resurrection and of all the faithful dead. If we are in him, then one day when he returns, we will be raised like him. And what's more is that 2 Corinthians 4, 17 tells us that whatever opposition or suffering we face on account of Christ is actually preparing us for that eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We can face whatever hardship we might encounter in this life with courage if we've got resurrection coming and if it's all being used to prepare us for that day. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then the light of the new creation has dawned. This present age is not all there is. Jesus has begun and will one day finish making all things new. And we will experience glory forevermore. And if that's the case, then we can bravely face temporary challenges and sufferings and setbacks and discomforts and inconveniences now. If we're looking for the kingdom of God like Joseph, it's a relatively small thing to put our reputations or relationships, or jobs, or even our lives on the line in comparison to something so much greater and so much weightier and so much more eternal. Friends, Jesus is raised. He has been raised from the dead. Be convinced. Be courageous. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts, that we trust it, that we believe it, that we be convinced, and having been made convinced, let us be courageous in our work and witness in this world. Strengthen us for that as we come to the table and commune with the risen Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.